0: Hey, pals, here's the deal. When you support your local public radio station, your station then takes your cash and creates local journalism and NPR programming. And then NPR turns that investment into radio and podcasts just like this one that you love. So when you support your local public radio station, it helps keep this podcast that you are listening to right now going, and it helps NPR create new ones. So I gotta ask you, do you want to keep these stories and conversations going? Well, if you said yes, then please donate now to your public radio station of choice to keep the programs you love on the air. Just go to donate.npr.org listen and then share why you did on your various social media with hashtag why public radio, W-H-Y public radio. And thanks. A couple of weeks ago, I met up with a pal at one of Brooklyn's brunchiest brunch spots. But no mimosas or Bloody Marys for us, because we weren't their funsies. We were working. Uh, can I have some tea? Black tea? I would take the same, please. Now, you might recognize that first voice. It belongs to Brendan Francis Noonan, one half of the Dinner Party download crew. His partner, crime, Rico Galeano, couldn't be bothered to brunch with us on account of the fact that he actually hates brunch, Also, because he lives in California, but whatever, details. Our pal Noonam also hates brunch, but he generously agreed to join me, if only to explain why he detests this hybrid weekend meal. Do you ever willingly go to brunch, or am I sort of forcing you into something that really feels uncomfortable?
1: Honestly, I've avoided the brunch that we write about for years now. I, I really avoided all costs. We're at a pretty cool brunch spot yeah. in the belly of the beast in Brooklyn. Like, if this, is, if this is the equivalent of where, like, the Lusitania was this is where brunch war started. Like, a few blocks that way, another place will be unnamed.
0: Noonan and his co-host, Galliano, despise brunch so much they wrote a book about it. It's called Brunch is Hell, How to Save the World by Throwing a Dinner Party. What do you tell me your... Yours and Rico's main beef with brunch.
1: Brunch is the—it's um, it's a misuse of leisure time. I feel like somehow the man or whoever, the powers that be, have the tricked man. people into thinking that it's relaxing to um, wait in line for a really long time, overpay for food items, and get a little bit tipsy in the middle of your day. Like, you're stabbing one of your days off in the heart. Right. Because you're not doing anything before brunch. You're either waiting in brunch or you're coordinating to go to brunch. After brunch, you just you can basically just you go into a drool nap or stumble in Well, you're in a,
0: you're in a coma. Stumble you're in, like, a, like yeah. a factory yeah. egg coma.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So it's like destroying one of your days, which you could um, write your screenplay. You could go on a hike. You could just stay in bed with your lover. There are yeah. so many better things to do than just to be put into the hell mouth of capitalism on um, the first time you have a free moment in your in your week.
0: I'm Lauren Ober and this is The Big Listen from WAMU and NPR. Each week on The Big Listen, we invite you to eavesdrop on some of the great conversations happening in our earbuds today. And maybe, just maybe, may help you find some new things to listen to. This week, we thought we might keep the holiday food coma going with a little audio digestif. We're exploring the smorgasbord of food podcasts. We'll learn about the surprising world of single origin chocolate. Mm, yum. And we'll hear from a New York Times food writer about what podcasts she's snacking on. Plus, we'll check in with the top chef masters judge who slipped on some pretty big oven mitts when he took over hosting the splendid table. And of course, we'll talk about brunch and also try to work in as many food buns as possible. Now, I know that Brendan Francis Newnham's disquisition on brunch might rub some people the wrong way. It might even come off as a little snobby. But his and his co-author, Rico Galeano's scorn, is in service of something greater. They want to elevate brunch's better-looking, more sophisticated brother, the dinner party.
1: What we ultimately call the dinner party is a recess for adults. Like, yeah. it, it's recess. It can be, it's it's a laboratory for for ideas, but also for absolute silliness. There there are different ways to spend time, to spend one's leisure time that can be more enriching, but also more mischievous, like more delightful.
0: We'll return to my brunch with Noonan in a bit. But now we're going to check in with another person who has some pretty strong opinions on dining. Kim Severson is a national food correspondent at the New York Times. She's written about museum cafeterias, heirloom popcorn, and New Orleans' culinary rebirth after her King Katrina, among about a million other culinary topics. And she's won a whole packet of awards for her journalism, including four James Beard Awards. But for our purposes, she's also really into food podcasts. And if we're really good and we clean our plates, maybe she'll give us some recommendations. Kim Severson, welcome to The Big Listen. It is my great honor. Oh, well, thanks. I know that, you know, November, December are probably your, like, ridiculous times because you are a national food correspondent at The Times. You've worked there for more than a decade, if I'm not mistaken. Indeed. Yes. What does your job actually mean? You're not going out and reviewing restaurants, right? I started,
2: actually, back a long time ago when I was... Um, just starting to write about food a little bit on the side when I was in Anchorage, Alaska. I got the food critic job, and I always joke with people that being the food critic in Anchorage, Alaska, was a little like being the best ballerina in Lubbock, Texas. But I actually said that I was given a speech once, and I said that I made made that joke, and afterwards, a woman came up and she goes, uh, "I was the prima ballerina in Lubbock, Texas." And I thought, "Oh my
0: gosh, I knew this would happen one day." Right? You needed to be. You needed to pick a city that didn't have a ballet troupe, so. Were you were you into food as a kid like were you cooking at mom or dad's side or or did they even cook Oh my gosh yes well I had
2: an Italian mom and we had five kids in our family so a lot of it was cooked for survival I had to learn right. to make <laughs> salads early and like you know you were not getting away with You know, not eating. And my mom, because she was Italian, cooked a lot and she cooked pretty well. You know, I just learned sort of at her side. Right. I also was um, for a short period, I'm very proud of this, was the assistant manager at a Little Caesars Pizza when I was in college. (laughs) Imagine the heady power I felt uh, being able to fill the shift sheet out at the, you know. Anyway, so, you know, I, I have a deep background. But, you know, I was like a post-Watergate baby and we all yeah. ran off to journalism school and we thought we would change the world and, you know, whatever. We tried. And uh, <laughs> I always kind of wanted to write about food. And, like, I got my break, that a big break that I had mentioned in Anchorage, Alaska. Yeah. And then I got a job at the San Francisco Chronicle. And this was right when childhood obesity was, was they declared it a, an epidemic. Mm-hmm. You know, we were starting to come into that second wave of... You know, the maturation of the kind of 70s alternative food movement. Mm -hmm. There was this point at which food and news started to merge, and and in newspapers, it wasn't just kind of the food pages. So I did that in San Francisco, and that was really kind of the just sort of rode that wave of food
0: being more important in culture
2: than it had been or different in culture than it had Mm -hmm. been.
0: I I remember when I was a kid, like cooking shows were a really big thing and that that was an appropriate use of the television. It wasn't, you know, cartoons or garbage. It was like actually learning something. Did you did you watch cooking shows as a kid? Oh, my gosh. I loved the cooking
2: shows. And that was I have this sort of Saturday afternoon memory of the PBS
0: shows and you know, like an NPR spoof now when I think about them. (laughs) Were there ones that you listened to? Because I I remember, obviously, Julia Child or The French Chef. And then, like, I was thinking about this, like, the Frugal Gourmet popped into my mind. Yes, the Frugal Gourmet. I mean, I'm old
2: enough to remember vaguely the Galloping Gourmet who was always kind of drunk. (laughs) Let's
3: see how we shall begin this extraordinary business. We shall begin by taking a small pot. (laughs) Here it is there'd be one around somewhere. And in this small pot, there's a heavenly nectar. And this is just fantastic because this comes up to the boil, boil. And then you add just a short slurp of spat. <laughs> it's perfectly right? right, don't worry, don't worry. I'll show that to you later. <laughs> and. Just never hide
2: a thing. And they always had that kind of music. You know, it's almost like all the music and all those shows at the time
0: seems sort of interchangeable in my (laughs) head now. (laughs) Exactly. All the kitchens looked about the same. But clearly, like, people love them. And now, I mean, we have networks devoted solely to cooking shows. And in public radio, we have followed that a little bit in that there are cooking shows on the radio. But I feel like it's harder to do Food in audio because you know it's isn't oral yeah is it yeah it's not it's not oral
2: it's true oral isn't that what your kids call it's, it in the radio it's, it aural. is true it
0: is true but yeah. I re-
2: I do have a, I have this funny story a friend of mine who used to write with me at the San Francisco Chronicle Marlena Spieler, who had a grilled cheese book out <laughs> part of her book tour was to have to go on radio and she yeah. would you know, cook grilled cheese on, on their radio for people. And they would taste it and go, but she was like, it was really hard because so it didn't sound like So she would actually bend down by the microphone and go, <laughs> to make it sound like it was sizzling, oh, you know? No. It was a, quite a challenge for her. She's like, oh my God, making these grilled
0: cheese on the radio is just hell. No. So, but in public radio, we, we've had a few cooking shows, including The Splendid Table, which has been around right. for so long that it was spoofed on SNL. Now, Terry, it's Christmas season again our favorite time of year. That's right, Margaret Jo. Holiday time is when the most wonderful
3: culinary wishes can come true. Now, what's on your list this holiday season,
1: Margaret Jo? Well, Terry, I really got greedy this year. I'm asking Chris Kringle for a wooden bowl, some oversized index cards, and a funnel.
0: Ooh, a funnel. That'll be great for funneling. I know.
1: I, I feel like a glutton.
0: Was that the one with the sweaty balls? Yeah, that was. Yeah. Mm hmm. Exactly. Thank you. I didn't I wasn't going to bring it up. but Thank you for bringing it up. Uh,
2: is that OK to say yes. on public radio? I think
0: so because of the way it's spelled. Yeah. Mm hmm. OK. <laughs> right. But like Lynn Rosetto Casper was the food radio
2: maven for so long. And it is, I think, that tr- that same like that Saturday afternoon thing. I And, and Lynn Rosetto Casper was wonderful at you would just people would call in and say, you know, I have... You know some pine needles that my husband harvested and then I also have all of this cabbage and I was wondering (laughs) is there anything and she'd be like do you know what would be wonderful (laughs) if we would take those pine needles and I would take just a little balsamic vinegar and then and she would do this whole like incredible wrap with whatever rando ingredients the callers had and I just it was an art
0: We've got Sean on the line from Norfolk, Virginia Sean what's up?
1: Hey Lynn, I was given a gift of bacon-flavored coffee syrup,
0: and <laughs> bacon is getting into everything. I love it.
2: I just loved it. I just loved that she did that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you listen to other food or cooking shows that are in podcast form or on the radio?
2: I do listen to some. I I scan a lot for work just to kind of see what's out there, yeah. and I have some thoughts. I. I do like Chris Kimball, who used to run America's Test Kitchen, who some people feel like is just, um, oh, maybe dated or arrogant or Mm -hmm. what does Chris Kimball know? And all he cooks is New England food. But he's actually quite great. And Mm -hmm. he's got a new thing, Milk Street Kitchen. And he gets this woman, Sarah Moulton, on to talk about cooking in his kitchen. And I love that because Sarah Moulton, she ran the Test Kitchen at the Food Network in its early days, and she's right. just a really good, solid cook.
1: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Sam. Hi, Sam. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Medfield, Massachusetts. It's not quite a stone's throw, but it's close enough. How can we help you? <laughs> well, I'm confident in poaching eggs, and with poached eggs comes the dreaded hollandaise sauce. Um, I've finally found a technique with an immersion blender. But the last few times I've made it, the sauce has really quite emulsified. It's kind of leaving me with a thin sauce, like a thin eggnog. And I'm just kind of wondering,
3: I guess, is there a way to save that, or what am I doing wrong?
1: Well, this question is one major reason why I do this show, Sarah. Because, Sarah, you've been trained up on Hollandaise, right? Yeah,
2: well, can I instead, Sam, tell you the way I make Hollandaise, which really works sure. for me? Sometimes I'll do a white wine shallot reduction. Sometimes I'll just add a little bit of white vinegar, you know, champagne vinegar and lemon juice to some egg yolks. And I put it in a metal bowl that's set over another bowl of barely simmering water. Um, I listen to the Kitchen Sisters a <gasps> oh, lot. I think they do amazing yes. food radio. Yeah. They were doing a story about cooking in prison,
0: uh-huh. and it
2: was a, a fellow in Angola who was making pralines um, in like a An- coffee can. Do you mean Angola,
0: Louisiana, the prison, prison in Louisiana, yeah. mm-hmm. right? hmm
2: Sometime I was fortunate enough to get pecans. They got a lot of pecan trees around Angola, and they had some officers, once they tasted candy, making sure I had pecans. (laughs) We would bribe the orderly. Sometimes you'd get a fruit can, peach can, but most of the time it was Coke cans. They were easy to get. Just peel the top, and then peel another can, triple it up, maybe 18 inches long, and have toilet paper, roll it up, and turn it into like a burner. I, I kind of enjoy the thrill of going outside the box a little bit, making candy, and then giving it away, you know, especially guys on death row, because I just wanted them to have something that they hadn't
4: had in a long time. The
2: urge and desire to cook and to share food is so strong that in prison you would do all that. And the other thing that's happening is local food writers are starting to do food podcasts, and it's kind of an interesting way to figure out what's happening on some local scenes. Like... um. Addie Broyles in uh, Austin, mm-hmm. she's a food writer at the Austin American Statesman, and they have their 360 podcast.
0: Mm-hmm. Maribel Rivero had been involved in Austin restaurants for a number of years before attending the Culinary Institute of America in San Antonio. She joins us to tell us about her new restaurant, Yu-Yo. So,
4: Maribel, tell me how you got to Yu-Yo. It's a long journey,
0: but um, it definitely starts with the CIA, my basics in the Culinary Institute of America my goal for cooking is not
4: to cook to show something that's new and exciting or you know these all these new products it's more about the story and the history behind the food
0: why is that flavor that flavor well that you know that product comes from the amazon and the people use that product because or that fermentation because They don't have refrigeration in the Amazon. Mm -hmm. So, different things. So, I like those a lot. I think Mm -hmm. those
2: are really interesting. Mm
0: -hmm. I have noticed there are a lot of comedy food podcasts. I asked you to listen to one of them the International Worldwide Global Biscuit Review.
1: Welcome to the International, Worldwide, Global Biscuit Review Podcast, the podcast for the Post-Hope Generation. I'm David Price, and I'm David Knight. And this week we're reviewing pink wafers with a. Oh my
2: gosh! I am creator, now a super fan of the International, Worldwide, Global Biscuit Review. My Christmas present came early. You
3: be judging as much on just the texture without the dunk, as okay, well as yeah. kind of in that regard, because I, I quite like the the texture of it. You really? Because it's so the dustiness not the dustiness but i just the just the sort of crunch to it
1: not the asbestos um <laughs> element has. there's
3: a lot of stuff i don't like yeah. about it but the the crunch of it yeah i, I do quite enjoy it's got a, it's got a heartiness to it that i, I that i like
2: okay the it's british accent helps, helps me down. right That's super fun <laughs> they don't try to out stupid each other they just are really they're like very super thoughtful about biscuits but hilarious like I mean, I like they say things like, "Well, this cookie is rather like papier mache, wouldn't you say?" And you're like, "Oh," <laughs> and uh, and there's like, when I was a young, you know, young, these are the kinds of biscuits you'd have when you go to the beach. Well, shall we, shall we have a bit of them then? Yes, we shall. So you think this is boring, but then they're like, "You know what? This is how all food tasted during the war. This is what I'm thinking." And right. they, I really loved it. I and they take their their biscuits very seriously, right. and but it kind of broadens out into this larger cultural commentary and a way for me to learn more about what it was like growing up as a British kid. So I loved that. And I like the guys. I feel like I would like to hang out with them.
0: Kim Severson, James Beard, award-winning New York Times national food correspondent. Thank you so much for hanging out with us here on The Big Listen. Ah, you're welcome. Kim Steverson is a national food correspondent at the New York Times. To find out more about her work or any of the podcasts she recommended, check out biglisten.org. Now, if you recall from the top of the show, dinner party download host Brendan Francis Noonan and I were dining at what could be Brooklyn's ground zero of brunch. But Noonan, co author of the new book Brunch is Hell, unsurprisingly finds brunch to be most vexing. Still, we had to soldier on, we had a mission. And our criminally good-looking server had already made one pass to take our order, but we were not ready. And when she came around the second time, we had to get with the program an order. May I have the two eggs over medium, please? Um, with some hash browns and toast. Our steely-eyed server asked if I wanted to upgrade my order. Classic brunch move, madam. But I declined. Newnham also kept it simple.
1: And can I get um, scrambled eggs and toast, please? In in whatever form is easiest for you guys.
0: He was very clearly cowed by our waitress.
1: Did you hear how tough I talked until she arrived? And then I'm like,
0: yes, please, may I have scrambled eggs? You're like, whatever whatever kind of eggs will work for you. And so there we were, both intimidated into puddles by a server who would sooner get hit by a bus than smile at us. Noonan and Galliano argue in their book that this would never happen at someone's home during a dinner party.
1: Part of this whole book is entertain at home. Like if you want to sure. have people over, sure. that's, a, that's a separate thing. That's filled with love and uh, that, that's like a, a great way to relax and be human in a place that's right. not um, a, a commercial undertaking. Right.
0: Noonan explained that the brunch industrial complex doesn't exist for your pleasure or enjoyment. But a dinner party, if done right, is all about making guests feel at ease.
1: Right now at this brunch spot, could we smoke a joint? Could I could I whip no. out an acoustic guitar and start making a funny I song wish about Paul, Bra- Paul I, Ryan? I, I wish I you did. We'd be, we'd be arrested by the brunch police.
0: We're going to take a quick break now so I can come up with a funny song about Paul Ryan. But when we come back, we'll chat with the host of The Splendid Table, Francis Lamb, about his favorite food to make at home.
3: Fried rice and fried noodles, those are the foods that send me home. Those are the foods that send me back into my parents' home and just be like, mom and dad taking care of everything.
0: But first, we're going to explore
4: the world of cacao with chocolate expert, Simran Sethi. Chocolate isn't neutral, right? Uh, Bread is pretty neutral to me. I don't have a deep emotional connection with bread. I don't turn to bread when I'm sad or when I'm tired. I don't look for bread in an airport to get me through a crappy flight, it's chocolate. That's coming up next. Stick around.
0: This is NPR.
2: My name is Dawn Ingen. I'm from uh, West Haven, Utah, close to Ogden. And my favorite podcast is Mormon Stories.
1: January 6, 2002. Uh, I, I had, my wife and I were in agreement. Uh, we're leaving the church. Um, and and I felt like, I, I compare it to, to being in a burning apartment building, and you know, live on the top floor. And, and you realize the building's on fire. You, you've got a, several options. And, and one of those options is just to get out. To take care of yourself. Don't worry about anybody else. Just leave. Another option is to pound on every door on the way out, screaming and yelling, Fire, fire! Mormon Stories is um, a podcast giving
2: Mormons who left the church without wanting to or on their own and trying to find a life after that. And I think it takes a lot of courage to do that.
0: Hey, pals, welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and if you live in a flyover state like our pal Don from Utah, and you have a favorite podcast you want us to hear, don't keep it to yourself. Call up the podline 202-885-POD1. Also, honestly, you can be from any state. We're not picky. When I was a kid, no one really fussed about chocolate. There were Snickers, and there were M&Ms, and there were Kit Kat bars, and you were just happy to get one of those. But today, the chocolate you find at the grocery store isn't just Hershey's or Nestle's or Cadbury. It's 80% dark and single origin and infused with cardamom or chilies. Artisanal chocolate is now for the masses, at least those willing to pay $6 for a bar. Journalist Simran Sati is one of those people willing to throw down big bucks for a bar of chocolate. She's been writing about chocolate's evolution and impact for years, and now she has a podcast about chocolate called The Slow Melt. When we speak about
4: fine chocolate, how do you define it?
2: Oh my gosh, it's it's like many things.
4: How do you define fine cacao and chocolate? Um, you know, it's interesting. So, if you were going to define craft chocolate in a sentence, what would that definition be? I don't know that I would do it yet, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> and I'm not <laughs> saying that to,
0: to be difficult. I, Simran I Sati, host of the Slow Melt. Welcome to the Big Listen. Thank you. All right. So, before we sort of dig into chocolate, um, you know, the 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 thing that we all love. Before we dig into like chocolate, the bar, uh, can mm. we get just a nickel tour of chocolate, period, because chocolate's like it comes from a seed and then somehow we get in a bar. And I don't know right. how that happens.
4: Exactly. Well, I can I can tell you, I've, I have the, had the great fortune of spending many years studying this now as a visiting scholar at the Cocoa Research Center in Trinidad, which <laughs> I is the largest believe. collection <laughs> I know. Your job is really like hard. <laughs> right. And my life is very hard. And it is it is always great to put a, sprinkle a little chocolate on top for right, that right. reason. yeah <laughs> um, I learned to make chocolate. I I did sensory analysis training on how to properly taste cocoa and assess the different aromas and tastes within it. I've I really admire this substance because truly it is one, you know, it was every birthday cake, it was my wedding cake, it has gotten me through a number of heartbreaks including, you know, it was like the divorce cake. Oh. And and yet <laughs> And yet, right Lauren, I had no idea of these processes. I didn't know cacao, you know, cacao is sort of the seed that ultimately becomes cocoa and then chocolate was fermented. I Mm -hmm. didn't know what it looked like in nature. And I thought to myself, this is so emblematic of kind of a bigger connection or lack of connection to food. Cocoa, at least for me or chocolate, isn't um, neutral, right? Uh, Bread is pretty neutral to me. I don't have a deep emotional connection with bread. I don't turn to bread when I'm sad or when I'm tired. I just I don't look for bread in an airport to get me through a crappy flight. It's chocolate.
0: Uh, so, all right, I have a question for you about you know, you this is you you love chocolate. Uh, I feel like this is gonna make or break the conversation here. Um Ooh. How do you feel about chocolate that is adulterated with stuff like cumin or quinoa or like blood <laughs> orange whatever? <laughs> like, what is your
4: are you a purist i love it no i'm not a purist. as a matter of fact we did a whole maker series where we talked directly to chocolate makers we asked them to identify one bar to mm-hmm. talk about mm-hmm. and then we learn i am your stand-in the audience stand and i get to taste the bar mm-hmm. again doing the heavy lifting yeah really um <laughs> just on the you know carrying this uh, Jeez, how how can and- you ever go on I don't know. I don't know how I do it. But I uh, tasted those bars on behalf of listeners and heard the stories, right? So one of my favorites out of our Maker Series was a bar with quinoa in it.
1: Uh, There's puffed quinoa in it, and then um, lime zest, salt from Maras in Peru, and maracuya, passion fruit.
4: Wow. I've taken my first bite it's all those things <laughs> tell me how how do you work on proportions now I've got my mouth full but like how do you know how much lime salt is the right amount here's what I have to say about it I love inclusions I'm really excited right now even about <laughs> <Inclusions>. white chocolate <laughs> inclusions that's not even name, right? chocolate man oh okay well right we right. got a story isn't coming white, out about that isn't, isn't white chocolate just candy so here's the thing A cocoa bean is roughly 50% fat That's mm-hmm. what makes cocoa such a glorious substance right. It has the average So just to give as a point of reference uh, Cocoa has about 800 volatile aroma compounds Right. <laughs> so the, the kinds of things that give it its rich flavor mm-hmm. Wine has about They've identified about 200 So we're talking wow. about a very complex substance uh-huh. That is stable That fat is stable at room temperature We call it cocoa butter But it's just fat, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. not There's no dairy in there um, And that is a so when we think about flavor, those aromas are suspended in that fat, in mm. cocoa butter. So the reinvention of this is that it's now this great kind of neutral palette uh, for all these great, here we go with the word, inclusions. So everything from, uh, there's a German maker that puts in like, Brussels sprouts and kale, you nope, know, just nope, really.
0: No, nope. I'm not yeah, eating chocolate know, right? with Brussels sprouts. Like, it's just not going to happen,
4: <laughs> you know. And that it finally becomes the health food that all these, you know, people have been proclaiming, right? So, no. or rosemary, salt, lemon. I mean, it is actually extraordinarily cool what is kind of happening with this exploration or expansion of, of kind of what chocolate is. So, so I have
0: a bar here in front of me. Mm -hmm. I know that that one thing you talk about is sort of how to to taste chocolate. So I'm going to, this one is 73% cacao. Mm -hmm. It is single origin from the Dominican Republic.
4: Lovely. Okay, so let's
0: Let's let's open this guy up. Oh, it says thank you, thank you for opening. Okay, the bar is so much smaller <laughs> than the package. This is this is not really a human size adult <laughs> portion. Okay, so it has no inclusions. It is not adulterated mm-hmm. at all. It is just mm-hmm. cocoa, cacao, and uh, cane sugar and cocoa butter, all organic. Um there we go. as soon as I opened the package there was a great mm-hmm. aroma that came from it
4: what you're doing is completely spot on which is smelling it okay. but every one of our senses factors into the experience of kind of flavor right so right. you can you can see if you look at the bar and see like the sheen of the bar yeah the, the so that glossiness is telling you how well it was tempered yeah. it's not it's not um, terribly it's not like I it's not like
0: mirrors, like I can't see my face yeah. in it, but no, it you know, there's a little bit, it's glinty. It's a little glinty. It's glinty
4: right? That, that, that process of tempering reconfigures the molec the molecular structure, the crystalline mm-hmm. structure, and that contributes to flavor. If okay. you go ahead and, if you hold it up to your ear or hold it up to the what? mic and break it, oh, I was like, you'll okay. hear a if snap. If I hold it up, if I hold
0: it, all right, if I hold it up to the microphone, it'll, it uh-huh. should snap. I'm going to get it all over me. Yeah. Okay. Hold on. I'm going to. Okay. That's not a bad thing.
4: All right, did Ooh, you hear that? Nice, tight snap. Yeah. Ooh, yes. We'll do it again. That's telling you so fun. again. Ooh. It's so, right, the, so Can't everyone, and we it. talk about this. Uh, keep Ooh. doing it. We talk about it on the podcast. I do it with every bar that I try. <laughs> I hold it up to my ear, listen to that <laughs> snap. I want that nice snap. I want that beautiful sheen. Yep. So tell me, instead of me telling oh, you, boy. I'd like you to tell me what you're, um, like, what you you're know tasting what? right now.
0: I knew that you were going to do this, and I, know, I right? don't know. What it
4: like here's the thing? Yeah, I have done
0: enough wine tastings. I have done maple syrup tastings. Mm, I have done anything great. that literally could have a terroir. I feel like I've done a mm-hmm. tasting for it, and so I would if I were to tell you what I tasted, it would yeah. I would just be aping what I had already heard. Like I'm like, oh well, you know, um, it tastes uh, has a little hint of tobacco and uh, <laughs> you know, the top note of leather. You know, like right. I, mm-hmm. but but would it? Ta- I mean, it has like um. It's not like super fruity. It's not like fruit forward, right? It has yeah. this like, um, and it's not spicy, but it's like, a sh- it's sharp. Mm-hmm. And
4: I don't to know me. how yeah.
0: to describe that other than how I just did, which was yeah. pretty pathetic.
4: The two things that, that kind of separate the rookies from the pros are having a language for it, right? Mm-hmm. So we have a flavor wheel in our tasting guide on the slow com,
1: mm-hmm.
4: And then also expanding our sensory library so being able to pull from the different things that we've tasted uh-huh. so the best way to taste chocolate rather than tasting one in isolation it's kind of hard right mm-hmm. it's to do it in a comparative way so what i would say is lauren whatever you just bought go find another bar yeah. a different origin by that same maker maybe two or three ideally mm. and taste all of them and then you'll really be able to ascertain the difference right and you'll be able to say oh well, this one is not fruity, but this one, second bar, is very fruity. If it was the Madagascan bar, for example, it would be kind of like a acidic fruit, like a right. Granny Smith apple, for example. I'm guessing
0: that, um, that tasting chocolate is different for everybody, right? Just like if you and I have the same exact glass of wine, we might not pull out the same flavors necessarily. I'm guessing. Exactly. Is that is that
4: correct? It is physiologically and sociologically correct. Okay. You are so on point with that. And that's why I hesitate. Yeah, sure. Of course, every one of these places is known for certain qualities. Dominican yeah. Republic is known for cocoa. It's known for some nutty notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also known for um, woody notes, like mm-hmm. a, sometimes a dry hay or a twiggy kind of thing. Right. Oh, yeah. Dry There's... hay. I should have said that. <laughs> Oops. But but what I really want to say is it's specific to the individual, what mm. we find and what we think is acceptable. And that would explain why when you sometimes see tasting notes, it'll say things like leather, cherry and, you know, I don't know, peanut. You right. know, <laughs> And it's like those things are so disparate, but that gives people all these different avenues right. to right. find their flavor. I every time I've done so many tastings now, every time I do a tasting, I do exactly what I did with you. What do you find? Because there's no wrong answer. Simran Seti is the host
0: of The Slow Melt and the author of Bread, Wine, Chocolate, The Slow Loss of Foods We Love. To find out more about her work, hit up biglisten.org. It's time for another quick break, but when we come back, we'll catch up with former top chef masters judge Francis Lamb about his new role as the host of The Splendid Table.
3: I don't think that the world of food stories. Should be only told by people who are known and influential and in some ways powerful. Because everyone has a story, and the intense personal experience of a person's food story, of a person's life, is something that I really want to bring to the radio as well.
0: That's up next. Don't go anywhere.
1: This is NPR. Five, four, space. Three. It used to be the playground of governments, but now rockets and satellites are becoming so small, so cheap, that even a podcast can do it. We have ignition. I'm Robert Smith, and starting November 29th, the Planet Money team launches their very own satellite into the cosmos. Listen on NPR One or that app you're using right now.
2: Hi, this is Kathleen, um, I'm
0: in Fairfax, Virginia, I just want to say I love you guys' show. Um, I wanted to recommend a podcast called Blue Dawn, um, it was a bunch of friends who get together
1: and play this really cool game called Dungeon World that's kind of like um, Dungeons and Dragons. Hi, and welcome to Blue Dawn, an intersectional, interpersonal, actual play podcast. I'm Dan, your Dungeon Master, you can find me online on Twitter at website.biz, and on Tumblr at the Peevas room. I brought it back. It's a it's a one off. <laughs> I, I was gonna say It's an
0: ongoing it. kind of sci-fi fantasy story and it's really funny. The cast is
1: very cool, very inclusive for LBGT and other um
0: romance subplots plots and stuff like that. Um and it's a really good listen. You guys should check it out. Alright. Bye. Hey, pals, welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and if there's a podcast that speaks to your passions and you're just dying to share it, give us a bell and let us know about it. The pod line number is 202-885-POD1. Call me. Food writer and former Top Chef Masters judge Francis Lamb has a tough task ahead of him. Much harder than, say, cooking a beef wellington or making a baked Alaska. He is the new host of The Splendid Table, public radio's long-running and iconic cooking show. It's Lynn Rossetto Casper with The Splendid Table. The Splendid Table's original host, Lynn Rossetto Casper, is an absolute legend. But after more than 20 years on air, she decided to hang up her apron and hand over her tongs to the next generation. And that would be Mr. Lamb. Francis Lam, host of The Splendid Table, welcome to The Big Listen. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so I want to talk about how you got to be the host of this iconic public radio show. But first, I want to hear a little bit about your own food journey, because um, a lot of people might know you from Top Chef Masters where you were a judge or New York Times Magazine um, where you were a columnist. But I want to know what led you into food uh, as a career when you were a kid. I, you know, I think I was
3: just always hungry and greedy, you know, and and, and like, I just loved the taste of good food. Like I right. just really, really loved it. And it's a dumb thing to say because who doesn't? But for right. me, you know, I think a lot of, especially when you're like a teenager or whatever, like you love to show how sophisticated you are by poo-pooing other things. Right, right. Like, right. You're just dissing stuff left and right. And I was never that guy around food. And mm-hmm. so we're at the, even at the cafeteria, you know, kids are like, oh, that's disgusting. That's gross. And I'm just sitting here like. I don't know, the Sloppy Joe tastes kind of good to me, guys. <laughs> like, you know, just trying to not let on that I was going to eat the whole Sloppy Joe because it was actually delicious to me. Right. Um. So, you know, so that always was a, a thing in my head. It was always, I always wanted to go eat. Even as a teenager, if we had, like, money, I wanted to go to the mall and go, like, check out the other pizza place that we don't normally right. go to. You know, like, I wanted to do that stuff, even though, like, um, it wasn't really a thing to be done.
0: yeah. So you you wrote about food for a long time but now you are the host of The Splendid Table which has mm-hmm. been on the air in public radio for over 20 years. You know, it's part of the public radio pantheon and I wonder how you approach making it your own because you're there's there's much to talk about in the world of sure. food. What are where are you hoping to lead the conversation?
3: For me, the world is both incredibly huge. And so, yeah, there are big, big picture things I want to talk about. Big picture things in terms of what our climate is doing, how our food is right. grown. Big picture things in terms of what is a culture that is unlike the one that we know in the United States or unlike um, one that a listener may have been exposed to. How do they see the world through their food? How does mm-hmm. how does their food show the kind of culture and the kind of people that they are trying to be at any Mm -hmm. moment, right? Mm -hmm. And it's also really small Mm -hmm. in that I don't think the world of food and food stories, because I do think of myself as a storyteller and a Mm -hmm. person who loves stories first and foremost, maybe even uh, as much as someone who loves delicious things. I don't think that the world of food stories should be only told by people who are known and... Uh, influential, and in some ways powerful. Mm-hmm. Because everyone has a story. Mm-hmm. And the intense personal experience of a of a person's food story, of a person's life, is something that I really want to bring to the radio as well.
0: Yeah. You know, in talking about sort of food politics, it made me think of one of your guests, um, Sean Sherman, and who's a Native mm-hmm. American chef. And um, not that what he was talking about was you know, sort of inherently political, except for when you guys got into a conversation about fry bread.
3: And so let me ask you when, I mean, I think most people don't know much about um, what you might call Native American food to begin with. But if you do bring it up, if there is an item that people think of, it's usually fry bread, right? Uh, But you don't make fry bread. Nope, we didn't uh, see any point in it. I mean, I grew up with fry bread and uh, it tastes great, but it kind of um, is everything that, you know, isn't Native American food in mm-hmm. the sense of really digging backwards, you know. So since we m- removed flour, you know, that's pretty much the bulk of it. And we look at the origins of fry bread and it really, you know, is coming from um, it's coming from the army, basically. It's, you know, showing people, you know, how to make a very simple staple out of flour and lard and salt and sugar, you know, I deep frying it in a pan. But there's no reason that fry bread should be, like, the go-to piece for every single indigenous community across North America because there's just so much awesome diversity and there's so much more to learn. What Sean is doing politically, I think, is super important. What he's doing is he's saying, like, hey, what would our cuisine look like if there were not European settlers who came to this land?
0: Mm-hmm. I think
3: that's such an important thing because he says, like, in my community, like, we've forgotten about a lot of stuff. And a lot of our you know, people I talk to, young cooks and young natives, don't have a sense of pride about our food and I want to instill in them a sense of this thing that's ours at the same time for me I'm fascinated by that um, as a person living in the world but you know again as an eater it's amazing to be able to taste new things yeah you know like uh, I live a very privileged life I get to taste a lot of things but truly I think one of the great universal pleasures is that moment when you've tasted something for the first time even Mm -hmm. if it's totally common for something else You know, the first time you ever tasted a walnut, you probably don't remember it, but a walnut is a delicious thing. And if you could put yourself back into a mind space of like, I don't know what this thing is. And now, walnut.
0: That's I mean, amazing. Like, I mean, it's debatable that a walnut is a delicious thing. Yeah. I I think of it as a brownie ruiner. Um, you know, oh, in my own sorry. okay, okay, a brownie. Okay, we'll, we'll go there. A brownie. Imagine the first time you tasted a Gosh. brownie, you're like, oh my god, that's amazing. I'm really so adding. That is myself. one of the true pleasures in life. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, <laughs> you know, you mentioned that you you get to eat a ton of cool stuff. You have the the privilege of eating all types of cuisines. Um, from sort of you know white tablecloth oak cuisine down to, you know, every kind of street food. Okay, Francis, ready to taste? Can I am Francis more than fork? ready. I am more, more than ready. A little fresh
3: scallion on top to finish. Yeah. Thank you so much. All right, I'm gonna go in. Actually, do you use forks and spoons in the forks Philippines? or spoons? do you? Use? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Forks and spoons. Oh, dude. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude. That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> this, is a, this is really rude to be talking into the radio with my mouth full.
0: I wonder what are the things, what are the three things that you are making or that are just like, this is, this is what it will bring you the most comfort to make?
3: <laughs> you know, I, this is such a great question because you turn this question around on me. I ask it to people all the time and I've never thought about my own answer. So oh, now come I'm on, totally... <laughs> Francis. I'm like chewing my nails. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> this is going to mean so much. Okay. Okay. I'll give you three. I'll give you three and in no particular order. Um, but they're for different people. Okay. Okay. So for myself, fried rice and fried noodles are ju- like, are, it's such a cliche, but those are the f- foods that send me home. Those mm-hmm. are the foods that send me back into my parents' home and just be like, hey, everything's okay. Mom and dad taking care of everything. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I don't often feel like I need that, but once in a while, you kind of want someone to just give you a big <laughs> hug and a bowl of fried rice. You know what I mean?
0: All right. So we got a, we got a bowl of fried rice. What else?
3: Um, for my wife... For her, I would take, I would want to cook a beautiful piece of Alaskan sockeye salmon. And I would probably do it really, really simply. I would probably um, maybe sprinkle it with a little bit of really nice soy sauce or maybe a little bit of fish sauce. And just bake it really slowly in the oven in like mm. a 225 degree oven until it's just kind of cooked. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would serve that with like some beautiful vegetables and um Maybe for her, her family's Portuguese. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also maybe boil some broccoli rob and do some garlic and olive oil on that because that's the food she grew up with. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe I'll do, they do this thing called patatas moruj, which is really fun. Mm-hmm. You boil potatoes, like whole small potatoes, and then you smash them with your fist. Oh, fun. <laughs> <So> you, boom. <laughs> and then you take those like discs and you fry them in olive oil to oh. crisp. Oh my God, so maybe need, that's what I would serve my wife. Need to be Portuguese. And Maybe I'll find some way to put like a sardine in right. there, or maybe some salt cod, just to make it really go. Like you know, <laughs> baby, this is for you and your people.
0: Oh, <laughs> that's that is really lovely. Um, all right, so we got a dish for you, a dish for your wife. What's the last yeah, one?
3: And I and something for my baby. Can, and for my baby, a, a you baby know, what? I'll make the sardine. I'll make my. I'll make the sardines for my baby. Really. Yeah, is your child your child who is
0: almost two will eat a sardine? Well,
3: I think she's. I think yes, but because she doesn't know what she likes (laughs) and doesn't like yet, so she'll be like, "Oh, cool." Right. I mean, this is the, yeah. yeah, Let's let's bookend this whole interview with cliches. I love it. This is the biggest cliche of all, but there truly is at this moment in my life nothing that makes me happier than watching my baby eat. Oh. Watching her take her hand and just shove it into her (laughs) plate of food and grab something and just shove it into her mouth and just go (laughs) And she will eat small oily fish, which is great for her brain development, so I hear. That is Um, amazing. But yeah, nothing makes me happier (laughs) than to see her eat food with gusto.
0: Francis Liam, host of The Splendid Table. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. It's been a blast.
3: Thanks so much for having me. (laughs)
0: Francis Lamb is the host of The Splendid Table from American Public Media. To find out more about the show, go to biglisten.org. Well, we've almost reached the end of this week's episode. Oh, no. Bite your tongue, Lauren. But before we let you go, it's time for... C-H-A-R-T-O-G-R-A-T-H-Y. Chartography is our 60-second mapping of the Apple Podcast charts. But we're not looking at number one or even number 100. We're looking at number 289. And if your podcast has reached number 289, great work, Buster Brown. That is an amazing feat. I'm serious. Uh, Okay, so this week's 289 is a show called... Welcome to yet another
1: swirl around the bowl.
0: And it is hosted by a collection of men led by... The
1: man who never forgets the flush,
4: Rick Mancrush.
0: I'm just going out on a limb here, it might not be his real name. Um, And then there are a bunch of other guys who uh, co-host with him. Guys, Mark, Ryan, Alex, Andy, I don't know, Rick, no that that was the host I guess I don't know it's a lot of white man names
1: yeah probably
0: and then they all kind of sound the same (laughs) yes here's what happens they all go to the Rhode Island Comic Con a laugh riot to be sure and they all share an Airbnb and the Airbnb had a bidet not one person out of the eight of us
1: had ever used a bidet.
0: Which, if you're not familiar, is the, uh, what would you call it? it is the toilet fixture that shoots up a geyser of water and cleans your behind for you.
1: The home run of Comic-Con was the bidet. It
0: was like they won Powerball or something.
1: You hear the engine start, <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> yeah.
0: Because their show is called Poop Culture, and then they get to talk about this thing that cleans their bottoms. I
1: expected like you know the sprinkler heads. It's like it sprays out like a daisy.
0: And really, what I learned is that men are monsters. And then all of a sudden, it's like just like Ben said, it's it's
1: almost like a laser guided shot.
0: It was like they were aliens dropped down from another planet. <laughs> They're self cleaning. Yeah, Poop Culture. <laughs> Want to listen to The Big Listen on the go? Well, you can. Just go to Apple Podcasts or NPR One or any fine purveyor of podcasts and hit subscribe. And then we will slide into your feed every week automatically. Also, when you're subscribing, leave us a tiny review. We'd appreciate it. Please and thanks. Also, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Hear Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R Big Listen. Should you want to send us a holiday e card a la your mom? Our email address is biglisten at wamu.org. The show today was produced by Daisy Rosario, Ponce Rutch, and Abby Holtzman. Jake Cherry mixed the show. I, Lauren Ober, was busy digesting. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army-Navy, the band, not the store. Special thanks to my number one guys, Hans Anderson and Whitney Jones, for pitching in this week. The big listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man, J.J. Yore, and is produced by WAMU and American University and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of america and now a few final thoughts from brendan francis Newham, co-author with rico galliano of the book brunch is hell how to save the world by throwing a dinner party He and I recently met up at a Brooklyn restaurant to chat about the scourge of brunch and the superiority of dinner parties.
1: I would love to be sitting here in a couple years having a talk about how dinner parties are also ruining the world because people are just really, they're they're doing too many dishes or they're not paying attention, but I feel like there's such a distance between where we need to be and where they can go wrong that I'm not worried about that.
0: So the world needs more dinner parties apparently, and Nunum and I, for sure, needed to get the heck out of that brunch spot.
1: You can't see this, but I've seen our wait person. Okay. And I feel like it's time for us to go. Like, I'm getting intimidated. I I think we might have to settle up so someone else can take this table. Right, because- Oh, I'm sorry, did you think this was for your leisure? (laughs) (laughs) All right, I guess we gotta go. All right, thanks for meeting me for a late breakfast.
0: But you know what? I'm still gonna be hungry in like two hours, because
1: that's brunch. We should just walk to the next line. (laughs) We should go wait in line for dinner.
0: It's gonna be a 3 brunch day,
1: guys. (laughs) Exactly.
0: But don't worry, we tipped handsomely, mostly because we were scared. Till next time, keep listening, America. This is NPR.